Hello, and welcome to the Voices for Suicide Prevention. As we like to say, our conversations here are real talk, real honest, real life. I'm Cassie Martindale. And I'm Scott Light. So our topic this month is traumatic brain injuries. And while, yes, it does have traumatic in the name, we are also very fortunate in this sense. Fortunate to have groundbreaking research, analysis, and treatment for TBI right here in Central Ohio. With us today are two such leaders in this field, Bree Miller, Program Director for the Ohio Brain Injury Program at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and Dr. Nicole Fernalski, Postdoctoral Fellow in Rehabilitation Neuropsychology, also at the Wexner Medical Center. Welcome to you both. Nicole, there are some $10 words in your title there. What are you studying and what drew you to this work? So I'm actually a uh, clinical ne- uh, clinical psychologist. I just I got my doctorate in 2021, and a postdoctoral fellowship is a specialty training that I've done, um, completing about two years in uh, rehabilitation psychology and neuropsychology. Uh, neuropsychology is the study of brain and behavior relationships, so it involves a lot of cognitive testing. And uh, rehabilitation psychology focuses on uh, medical populations and the disability community. So, Bree, similar question to you. I know we're starting off broad here, but tell us about the brain injury program that you run. Yeah, absolutely. So the brain injury program is located in Ohio State, and we are actually funded through the state of Ohio. So our duties are to represent Ohioans who have experienced brain injury by providing data for the state and then helping Ohioans navigate their injury. Now let's get into some specifics, and we should probably start with some baselines. Can you define what a TBI is and explain the different levels of severity? So a traumatic brain injury um, is an insult to the brain itself, um, usually from a, um, an event like a blow to the head or an, any kind of structural um, impact to the brain, um, usually just in, interferes with the uh, functioning of the brain systems. Um, it can be ranging from mild, uh, mild complicated, moderate, or severe. Um, to kind of keep it brief, um, mild is usually referred to as a concussion. A mild TBI is equivalent to a concussion. Mild complicated um, might refer to more like brain bleeding, things like that. Um, and then moderate and severe depend on a couple other injury parameters that we use, like a Glasgow Coma Scale, a GCS rating, um, how long the person was lost consciousness, um, how long they're in what we call post-traumatic amnesia, um, things of that nature. Um, the injury parameters are a little bit controversial in the field. Also important to note that a mild injury doesn't necessarily mean there was a mild impact on the person's life. Um, just as a severe injury doesn't necessarily mean that there is a severe level of disability from the cognitive and physical standpoint. So there really are a lot of different flexibilities there um, within those parameters. Can I ask you both? I In my in a previous life, I was a journalist, and I, and I had an opportunity to talk to a whole lot of people um, during the span of that career. And I remember I was talking to a brain surgeon one day, and he said this. He said, what we know about the brain is still dwarfed by what we don't know. Is that still the case? I mean, the brain was referred to as a black box <laughs> kind of for a while. There's a lot of different things that we don't know, which I think is fascinating, you know, that they're we're studying different things about our, ourselves, you know, that we're not able to fully comprehend, but I think we're getting there little by little. Okay. You know, I would say research has really advanced in the last 10 years. I know when I was an athletic trainer back in 2011, it was, this is a concussion. People are like, oh, they didn't get knocked out. They're fine. No, no, no. That's not what a concussion is. It's, they have symptoms. They don't have to have that loss of consciousness. Even it's just mind blowing that we're still defining what a brain injury is just 10 years ago. So 
thinking about how much this research is going to really advance in the next couple of years is going to be amazing to me. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times people assume that if they had a, a brain injury that they just had a concussion. And it's like, no, some, sometimes you have to clarify like, hey, you actually, this was actually a pretty severe injury. You know, you actually had bleeding in your brain or you had to have neurosurgery. Um, so some of times people will underestimate, you know, the impact it had or overestimate and kind of assume that, you know, it's going to turn, it's going to get worse or, um, you know, they had structural damage to their brain and maybe that wasn't the case if they did have a more mild injury. I think one of the biggest things is it's not like a broken bone. People are like, I had a TBI. It'll heal. It'll be fine. Sometimes maybe, sometimes maybe not. That's fascinating. Can you talk about that a little bit more, Bree? Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, my background is athletic training. So I was an athletic trainer at a high school and I always told the athletes, if you've seen one TBI, one concussion, you have seen one concussion. Mm -hmm. um, everyone displays different signs, symptoms, the duration of it. It may last two weeks, two months, two years. Everyone differs. You mentioned one. I'm going to come to a statistic that really caught mine and Cassie's eye here. We know that one in four Ohioans will experience at least one TBI in their lifetime. So multiply that out. That equates to 1.9 million fellow Ohioans. Those were our family members, neighbors, and friends. Um, so really, both of you can kind of jump in on this. Give us a range of what those injuries could be from what to what. Um, well, this this could definitely be um, anything from you know just a, a mild fall. You know, someone's tripping and walking, and they and they hit their head, and um, they may not they may not have any symptoms right away. But it's still important to um, to kind of get treatment. You know, to kind of go to the ER, get get a CT scan. You know, sometimes bleeds are a little bit slower or faster depending on um, the area of the injury. Um, so that could be something that could be a little bit more impactful than than what is originally um, thought to be. Um, or it could be anything from a car accident. Um, you know, we've had several uh, individuals that we've seen, you know, at our rehabilitation hospital um, from from severe uh, motor vehicle collisions. Yeah. And I will say one of the up and coming um, Ohio Domestic Violence Network is doing a lot of background research on just the impact of brain injuries on intimate partner violence. And so we don't really think about that group often. And what is interesting is one of our uh, colleagues, Rachel Ramirez, she's over at the network. Um, and she always mentions, you know, getting hit in the head, you don't see the bruising. And so this, it, these group of individuals who are in that intimate partner violence, they often will have head injuries for that reason. And so that's a whole different group that I never thought of until I started working with the Ohio Brain Injury Program. I think that's so interesting too, because those individuals are probably the least likely to receive care immediately after their injury, right? Because it's such a sensitive private matter. I highly doubt that that group, it has to be math, like just massively underreported. Absolutely. And thinking of the, 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 not only the brain insult and the, the, the cognitive implications, but the emotional impact of that. And of course, if someone has multiple concussions and multiple head injuries, um, the more the impact later on in life um, or their risk for more of a progressive um, condition like a dementia. I think about when we see athletes who may be retired from a sport, a contact sport, say 15, 20 years ago, and then you see them at a ceremony, you know, of retiring the jersey kind of a ceremony years later, um, their bodies are beaten up. And you can tell cognitively they may not be there. And that's a brain injury, right? Or injuries, plural. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of what we would call as like a 
encephalopathy kind of thing where encephalopathy sorry um where you know it, it is something where cte kind of came out right in the in the sports field of um chronic traumatic encephalopathy and, and kind of the the level of injury that, that keeps happening and happening and that level of insult to the brain can can definitely be pretty significant is that Absolutely. where the research is burgeoning too i mean it, it, or at least there seems to be a lot of awareness at least on the sports side yes um so especially coming from athletic training you know i always said we made concussions almost like an athlete problem where we actually forget about some of these other populations, you know, intimate partner violence, human trafficking. Um, even as we think of childhood trauma, the ACEs, you know, I work with some individuals who are probation officers and they say, you know, we don't know what this child has gone through. Could this be a potential? I think that just further solidifies this point that Three TBIs are three times as common in vulnerable populations. So would you like to expand on that? that definitely for individuals who are, um, you know, we think of our veterans or mil- active duty military um, who are involved in, in multiple combat situations, uh, individuals in contact sports um, or any kind of high risk, you know, uh, activities, right, um, from like car you know, car racing and, you know, other like skateboarding or rollerblading or any kind of other like, or even uh, horse racing, any other kind of, you know, fast, you know, fast impact sports for sure. Yeah. I feel like the list can go on and on <laughs> when you talk about vulnerable populations. Nicole, let me get you to expand on, on this in this way. We, we know that once a person has experienced a traumatic brain injury, they also have some correlations and or connections to increased risk factors ranging from drugs and alcohol to suicide risk. Help us to understand the why behind some of those risk factors. When we think about the what's happening to the brain um, when there is a TBI, um, it's kind of what we refer to as um, dysfunction in the frontal lobe system. So the brain has four lobes. <laughs> we have the, the frontal lobe. Um, in the front, right, right behind the forehead, we have the occipital lobe in the back, we have the temporal lobe, and we have the parietal lobe. And the frontal lobe is in the frontal lobe systems are what we call our area of higher order functioning. It's kind of what makes us human, uh, differentiates us from other primates or other animals, right? Having that pretty big free prefrontal cortex. And that's involved in several different systems. Um, the frontal lobe is considered like the CEO of the brain, the executive director, right? So anything from... Um, in, in receiving input from other areas. Um, so this could be like our problem solving, our planning, our organization, um, our disinhibiting of inappropriate behaviors, our regulating of emotions and things like that. And when that, that interconnecting system or a highway system, if you will, is disrupted and it's not receiving input from other areas of the brain, um, there's quite a glitch, right? So those kinds of uh, situations where someone is in a high emotional state or um, they're trying to weigh out different decisions and they just kind of might jump right to uh, something pretty aggressive or uh, something pretty dramatic if they're in a state of very um, very high distress or overwhelming situation. So that can result in impulsivity and not being able to regulate, you know, anxiety or anger, things like that, um, which could put them at an increased risk for violent behavior toward themselves, such as suicide. So Nicole, Somebody experiences a TBI, mild to severe. We know that that experience looks very different from one person to the next and that they may very well experience mental health complications down the road. There's this long-term impact that happens from a TBI and that also leads to an increase in their risk of suicide. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Regardless of severity level, um, it's a very significant impact on someone's life. Um, even from a mild, you know, a concussion, um, there's a huge emotional impact of 
a very scary medical event happening, um, it being a, a disruptive in their life. You know, they're taken out of their sport, they're taken out of school or work, um, and they really have to figure out, you know, how they're going to adapt with that. Um, they may have significant disruption in sleep, increased pain, uh, anxiety, depression, um, all those things can really come into play. It can definitely depend on the person, you know, maybe their uh, previous level of coping skills, their family support, any social support that they have. So, of course, all of that varies. Um, it definitely has that impact. And the more moderate to severe the, the injury may be, they may have more of those neurophysiological changes that are also really impacting and exacerbating that whole emotional event. Uh, so not being able to regulate their emotions, um, you know, the way they're trying to do or trying to communicate. And then Bree, you and I were talking the other day about this. The thing about uh, mental health complications is we don't always know what they're stemming from. And so somebody may have experienced a TBI, but they don't necessarily know that. They might not have received treatment for it. And now they have all of these symptoms that they're showing for depression, anxiety, you know, all of these correlating mental health conditions. And they might like their doctor may or may not be informed of their medical history. And so a lot of providers are just acting on the assumption that there's some other situation in life that could have caused this. And they don't know that much about TBIs. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the more that we go out into the community, the more often I hear this. Um, I actually had a conversation with someone who's a counselor and one of her biggest concerns was they opened up a new facility and they noticed a lot of individuals at this clubhouse did have a history of brain injury. Mm -hmm. And whether that's anoxic, so anoxic is actually from a lack of oxygen rather than traumatic brain injury. This could be from drowning, drug overdoses, and other, and that's what she noticed. That, you know, these individuals don't fit into a mental health category. There's something that else going on. And so it's back to that point of, a TBI just isn't like a broken bone sometimes. It doesn't just heal and go away. We still don't know. I would say we still don't know exactly what is going on with the brain healing-wise. I mean, I think it's also important to note, too, that um, not everybody is, is aware, you know, someone is, is at their primary care provider, for instance, and that's why we feel like screening for, a screening, I'm sorry, screening for TBI is really important too. Um, asking that person if they've ever had a concussion or ever had a TBI uh, before, for sure. How picking up, picking up on what you just said, screening awareness, and picking up on Cassie's question to Bree about awareness and just building more resources out there. How do we do it? We can do it through conversations like this, which are great, but how do we do it more on a mass scale? It's important to um, first really ask. You know, um, ask about if the person's ever had a TBI, ask about suicide. Um, I know it's been, uh, especially with asking about suicide, it's been a big stigma of that if asking about suicide increases the risk, um, which we found in the research that is absolutely not true. Uh, it's more important to, to ask the person to really um, cue into any kind of thing that they're, that they're experiencing to see um, what are some, some factors going on emotionally that may put them at risk. Um, so the important part with screening, uh, we would start with would be for providers um, to screen for TBI, for, for, starting, for starters. Uh, the OSU TBI method that we've de we've developed, um, Dr. Bogner and Dr. Cor Corrigan have actually developed um, this screening procedure to kind of 
um, go through a step-by-step um, structured interview about lifetime history of TBI, what the, what's the worst TBI that someone might experience if they lost consciousness, and it very much goes, in, goes into depth um, with those levels of severity, et cetera. And then also understanding that individuals who have sustained a TBI are at a lifetime or chronic risk of suicide. So a lot of times when someone is first diagnosed with a certain medical condition um, or anything like that, we kind of figure like, okay, maybe in the first few months or the first year or so, they're at the highest risk. Um, but a study came out um, with multiple, reviewing multiple medical conditions, and TBI was one of those that really stood out for a lifetime cr- chronic risk. Um, so making sure to really um, screen for that. So it sounds like we have better screening tools. Uh, is it working? Are we getting more people screened? Well, it's, it's important to know what kind of approach we're taking, right? So most of the time we have what we call like face valid measures for screening for depression and anxiety, things like that, and for suicide. Um, but it's really the important thing to focus on uh, for neurodisability in, in general, or specifically, is actually for more of the... Um, the cognitive vulnerability to suicide. So asking questions about hopelessness, about feeling like a burden, about a lack of belongingness, you know, things like that, rather than necessarily, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? It's more about cueing into those suicide cognitions. So those thoughts that someone might be having that they're not sharing um, that can, can put someone at more of an increased risk for suicide. Question for the group. Do we think that stigma stereotypes um, just around all of this, is, is the tide turning, you know, from that old school thought of, hey, you know what, uh, you're feeling down, you've got the blues, tough it out, kid. Ho- hopefully, tell me this tide is turning. I hope so. Um, I know, I know um, I'll have respect for, you know, generational uh, viewpoints, right? Um, you know, our parents, our grandparents, you know, they're a little bit probably more private about, you know, emotional experiences, uh, mental illness in the family, that sort of thing. I like to think nowadays we're, we're hoping to put more of a, um, enlightening way on that, you know, kind of say, Hey, you know, this is something that we should talk about. We should ask about it. You know, if we know someone is, is going through a significant life event like a TBI or any kind of life transition or significant, uh, situation in their life. Let's ask about it. How are you feeling? You know, what is this like for you? Are you, are you thinking about hurting yourself? You know, kind of just putting it out there, I think is really important to, to ask about it, to really listen, um, support an individual. What's interesting is I think just talking about it helps that stigma. I think last week I was actually with my family and it was my mom and my stepdad. And we were talking about how we were going to do this podcast for suicide prevention. And all of a sudden around the dinner table was, we are talking about how you know, my stepdad mentioned suicide, my mom mentioned suicide, and it became this conversation of how we all had personal experiences of suicide. I can't imagine doing that 10 years ago around the dinner table with my right. family. And so I feel like as we talk about it more and more and normalize it, that's starting to bring awareness to the situation. And even just brain injury, same thing with brain injury. How do we, you know, help this population? We talk about it. We get this podcast out. We start doing more and more and just discussing that this is the reality. Well, I also just think saying just tough it out is the worst thing you could say to some of these people. I'm sitting here thinking about uh, somebody who does a high impact sport, somebody who's Mm -hmm. experienced domestic violence, um, somebody who's been in the military. Those types of people often value their fortitude, their toughness, right? And the last thing we want to say to them is to just tough it out mm-hmm. if they're experiencing a mental health concern, because those are the people that are already doing that every single day. 
So, I mean, I really hope that changes. I really hope that we can continue to have these conversations. I think I'm the oldest one here at the table. I think I've got everyone here by (laughs) at least a decade, maybe two. But I can remember, you know, Tough It Out was, well, I can remember some of my own relatives saying that, you know, over the years. I remember having a conversation with my brother-in-law. He was playing high school football and he had an injury during the game. He said he was seeing double. And the head coach just said, get back in there, kid. We need you. Wow. He was seeing double. Mm-hmm. and But seriously, that's, that's the that, reality. That's the way it was. You know? And back in the day, it was only 2011. That's exactly right. As we right. were doing seriously. coaching education of this is a concussion. So many, They didn't get knocked out. They are fine. They didn't lose consciousness. No, no, no. That is not what it is. You know, there's all these, these different stereotypes, right? Like men can't show emotions. Men can't right. cry, you know, um, or even just uh, culturally or, you know, racially, eth- ethnic backgrounds. You know, we want to... We want to we want to let everyone know that you know this isn't just a you know Caucasian white Westernized you know view. This is something that should be you know um, should be important for everyone and should be available to everyone to know and feel like they're represented and they're validated in their experiences. And I think the hardest part is you can't see it. It's an invisible injury. So while you're walking, while you're talking, while you're doing all of this, you're still feeling. You know that's one of our questions that we always ask after a concussion. What if you just don't, do you just not feel right? Yes or no. And it's, that is a sign or symptom from the concussion. So back when we were the high school, you know, just keeping that in mind is we not only had the symptoms that we asked that were headache, the neurological, you know, the headache, dizziness, blurred vision, but we also asked, do you feel more anxious? Do you feel more depressed? Are you sleeping worse? Are you sleeping more? Mm-hmm. Keeping that in mind that I think bringing awareness to that feeling of you just don't feel right, that actually could be effects from a concussion or a brain injury. All right, let's talk about resources, tips, and help for people with a TBI. Who should they turn to first? So over in Ohio, um, recently with the state of Ohio, about two years ago, we had a significant increase in our line item budget, and we are now able to provide resources and supports for Ohioans. So the Brain Injury Association of Ohio is a great starting point. They are launching more and more support groups around the state of Ohio. They have great new webinars for individuals who have experienced brain injury. Um, And then the Ohio Brain Injury Program, we are doing a lot of education around the state of Ohio. We are doing, we also have a resource facilitation program, which is a person-centered approach to working with individuals with a brain injury to help accomplish their goals. Yeah, I'll say another resource that I really, uh, really like and I find very informative that I often uh, refer to for my patients and um, their caregivers or their families is the um, it's msktc.org um, the the model systems um, knowledge uh, website they have a specific area on TBI several fact sheets resources videos um, from everything from different changes that the person is experiencing um, for caregiver support burnout um, changes in behavior aggression you know emotional changes sleep changes. Um, and then returning back to driving, to work, to school, all of those things, anything you can, you could possibly think of is on there. And I think there's also a great resource. Um, another thing that's important to note too, like I mentioned before, um, really asking about how the person is feeling, listening, supporting, checking in, um, trying to stay connected, you know, to other, um, finding out a way to network with other individuals who've experienced similar, similar things. 
Um, and then, of course, if it is more significant, if the person, you know, is expressing uh, these kinds of hopelessness or worthlessness, things like that, or are expressing thoughts of suicide, um, there's, of course, the um, the 988 texting or calling line, the crisis text line, the veterans line, um, and also for, for families and um, caregivers as well or individuals who live with that person, um, making sure to remove access to lethal means, um, really, really kind of create a safer environment for that person. Always want to be err on the side of caution for sure. What if we have somebody listening right now and they have a friend or a family member who just doesn't want to go there and this person listening knows that their friend or family member has had a TBI, but again, that person just does not want to talk about it just yet. How does that person bring this up? Yeah, I think that's a great point to make. Um, there's a lot of us out there where we're just really uncomfortable having these conversations and opening the door and even asking about it, talking, talking, you know, about suicide at all. Um, so really having these resources, I think is important. Um, like Bree mentioned the Ohio brain injury connection, um, local mental health resources. Um, there's NAMI out there, which is also great, um, for the national Alliance on mental illness and mental health. And they have also really good resources. So, um, finding ways to even connect, even with medical providers, you know, a lot of times people, if they're depressed or anxious, or they're dealing with other things going on, they kind of go to their primary care doctors first. Right. Um, so I think it'd be important for, um, them to, you know, have that screening with their primary care provider or have them be linked to other resources, to mental health providers through the primary medical medical system is really important as well. And I think one of the biggest things is understanding that this is, you know, when you don't feel right and you're like, what is wrong with me? What's going on? What am I doing wrong? But just acknowledging that this may actually be a byproduct of that injury. Just to have that awareness, I feel like sometimes even when I had my, I've never had a brain injury, knock on wood. Um, But even when I went through some mental health struggles, you always think about what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling this way? And I feel like often that's your barrier for getting help. Like I should be fine. I should do this. But in fact, if I actually had a, you know, well, maybe my brain injury was the reason for this. And it's not just me and I'm thinking this way, you know, maybe just having that conversation is it actually could be from an injury. And no matter what you were doing or involved with or what happened to you, it's not your fault. And there's plenty of other people who have experienced similar things. And knowing that you're not alone, I think, with anything we struggle through in life is super important. All right. So we talked a little bit about healthcare providers and how somebody, that might be the first person that they go to. So it's really important that a doctor knows how to respond. Um, how can we spread the word on awareness and treatment options to those providers? Networking, community outreach, um, working with, so I know with Ohio State, we do a lot of research with brain injury, being informed. Um, like I said, this is a really new up and coming, I would say up and coming field within the last 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of movement in the state of Ohio right now. There's a lot of movement nationally to recognize the importance of brain injury. And so just being aware of everything that is going on. Or continuing education, you know, um, seminars or webinars that are out there um, for providers and any other healthcare professionals, I think is super important um, just for anyone to be aware of, of what's going on, you know, what could be potentially an option, a differential diagnosis, even if we're not working with individuals with brain injury on a daily basis, um, just so that um, other providers are, are aware that this could be an option. Bree and Nicole, thank you for the work you do every day and for your dedication to saving lives. And to our listeners, thank you as well. When you listen to our episodes, you break stigma and barriers and you care about mental health and saving lives. 
This is Voices for Suicide Prevention brought to you by the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation.